Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is Sydney Bowie. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systemically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. We are thrilled to introduce you to Darius Baxter, a true inspiration and emerging thought leader in the fight against poverty. Raised by a single mother through the murder of his father, Darius understands firsthand the struggles faced by low-income families. After graduating from Georgetown University with a degree in globalization and poverty, Darius began pursuing his passions through several social impact ventures. As the CEO of Good Projects, he has facilitated millions of dollars of investment and resources into low-income communities in the U.S. and abroad. In 2018, he developed the Good Zone to provide options and opportunity to 500 families living in public housing in his hometown of Washington, D.C. Darius is fueled by his belief that this generation has the tools and techniques to eradicate global poverty through collaboration, education, and technology. He launched the Baxter Family Kids Center in 2019 to address the need for quality education for the poor in one of Kenya's largest slums. His incredible work has earned him several accolades, including being named to the 2021 Forbes 30 Under 30 list and receiving the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Award in Spirituality. Darius is a true community organizer, serving on the board of DC Central Kitchen and collaborating on projects with Wondros and Unite. His work has been highlighted by national publications like the New York Times, 60 Minutes, and NPR. But most importantly, Darius's work has made a real difference in the lives of those he serves. In 2020, he received the Brickey Award, as voted on by residents in the public housing community where he works. Darius is a true inspiration, and we are honored to have him with us today. Darius, welcome, man. Thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast today. Just reading a little bit about your, your background and what you've done. Um, you are one of those people that kind of makes me look at my life. And I'm just like, man, what, what have I been doing? Like, I gotta, I gotta step it up, man. You are, well, you well, are inspiring. I'm, I'm clearly doing my job correctly. Then. Definitely, um, definitely. <laughs> no, Cindy, you're, you're, you're doing plenty. I'm sure I looked you guys up too. Y'all are killing me, man. Uh, thank, thank you guys for inviting me to, to City Relief. So yeah, man, appreciate you coming on. Um, so just to start, uh, if you could just tell, uh, tell the audience uh, listening just a little bit about your upbringing growing up and what has made you so driven to, to give back. Uh, you know, my father was a police officer um, during 90s D.C., mother a D.C. public school teacher. So although we started off our story in Maryland, a lot of my history was always directly tied to the District of Columbia. Um, whether I was going to work with my dad, he was actually the first um, black scuba diver in the Metropolitan Police Department. Um, now, knowing what I know now, how you should not be swimming in the Anacostia, I'm actually seeing why they encouraged a black man to do it. But um, outside of that, um, and then my mom, from being a D.C. public school teacher, uh, going to classes with her, um, these are kids the same age as me. 
um, but living extremely different lives. And I sort of started to gain that context very early in my life. Um, I, I can tell this story because BUT went on to make a whole special about it. Um, for those that want to catch it, my um, executive produced it. Um, my dad made a couple um, decisions in his life, which I don't knock him for. Being 29 years old now, um, we're right around the same age when he sort of made his path. And I can understand. And this is, uh, it, was, it was a different time. He uh, made some bad decisions, ends up separating from my mom, or my mom ends up separating from him. Um, those decisions ultimately lead to his, uh, his, his death. Um, when I was nine years old, my dad was um, uh, killed by gun violence. And that was a huge turning point for my family, particularly my mother, my brother and I, where we went from sort of this picture-perfect um, suburban uh, middle-class black lifestyle during 90s DC to now being thrust into homelessness. At that time, teachers still don't weren't making a ton. So now my mother is having to figure out not only how to keep a roof over our head, but how to keep two boys that would eventually go on to both be over six feet, how to keep them fed and clothed. So the, the path continues, but ultimately um, through her encouragement, her investment into through her, her sons, myself being one of them, um, we stayed on the right path, ultimately made it to great high schools, both throughout academics and our athletics. Um, I made it to a Georgetown University. I guess we can say the rest is history. So did you have an awareness of what homeless, homelessness was before you started experiencing it yourself? No, 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 no. And it, it wasn't actually, Wendy, that's a great question. It wasn't actually until I got a little bit older that I realized that I was homeless. Um, at the time, I thought that, you know, all right. My mom said, pack all our stuff up and put it in these boxes and that we're going to live with our grandma, like, I just thought we were downsizing because of the separation. You don't associate seeing your mother sleep on the couch for almost two years as homelessness when you're that age. And I know there's probably so many young people that have gone through sort of bouts of poverty that had absolutely no idea when they were younger. You know, I thought it was normal. Well, I knew it wasn't normal, but I didn't think it was so much of an outlier and I have to boil a pot of water um, because the, the, the gas wasn't working. Or that we all had to sleep in the living room next to the fireplace because it was cold in the winter or open all the windows in the house because there was no AC. You know, my mother would just tell us, oh, it's broken. Or it'll be broken for like three months. For little that I know, it's probably because she hate of jail. But I think poverty is such an all-encompassing thing, especially when you're young and you don't have that context. I don't want to romanticize it in a way, but the blessing was that I was always surrounded by love. So even though we were going through these things where maybe we didn't have place to live or my brother and I were both sharing the same bed. I never sort of looked down on myself because my mother did a great job. My grandparents did a great job, always still making us feel valued. Yeah, the, that value word is so important um, when we talk about people experiencing homelessness in whatever stage or for whatever uh, duration of treating people with dignity. I think that's a huge thing that we think about and talk about. It's the most important thing. You know, how you feel about yourself is how you show up in the world. And I was always encouraged, despite the things that we were going through, like that my life had purpose, like that God had a plan for me, that there was favor over my life, and that all I needed to do was just continue to stay on the path and let it all work out. You know, so here we are. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously you're saying that the fact that you were surrounded by love and the fact that it was kind of like, this just seemed somewhat like kind of like the norm. Um, do you feel like 
it could have gone differently for you as a, like as a child experiencing homelessness? Do you feel like children can experience that and, and um, the trauma of it can be a little different sometimes versus, you know, if you're experiencing that something like later on in life? Yeah, hundred percent. It really has, it, it, I, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I have to come back to it. I think a lot of that has to do with the parent, right? I was blessed to have a mother that shielded us from the experience that we were going through. Um, it was, oh, we're just going to stay with grandma's house for a little while. <laughs> you know, even in that environment, it was still, again, like all of this love that's being put into our lives where you have, and, but, and that was sort of a blessing because of maybe how my own mom was brought up and sort of the clarity that she had in her own life to know that she, that she can make it through this circumstance. Where a lot of times, particularly in the work that we do with Good Projects, we see parents that are sort of feeling uh, a certain type of way or dealing with their own traumas, and they don't make an effort to try to shield their children from that. Like, if I'm going through these things, if I know that there's no food in the refrigerator, if I know there's no money in my bank account, then you're going to know it too. Like, and you will be going through this with me. Kids don't necessarily have the maturity to navigate that. So what happens is, take in my case, you know, I'm seven, eight, nine, ten years old going through these things. You start to internalize that as opposed to where I was going through the world in a hopeful mindset because my mom just kept telling me, you know, we can make it through this. You start to go through the world more from a, a resentful mindset. Like, why me? Why was I put in this position? Why am I looking out and seeing my friends have these things, but I'm going home and I'm having to eat? from syrup sandwiches, like, and that's ultimately the challenge of a parent. It's like, and that's sort of the drawback, right? When we talk about the American context, it was really built on this framework, given this idea of the American dream. And Good Project's mission and vision is to support 500 families to uh, a place where they can achieve their version of the American dream by 2030, right? And when you really break it down to the most fun- fundamental level, take the branding out of it, uh, <laughs> all the propaganda, um, the simplest goal is that every generation will do better than the next. So what my mother preached to me was, hey, we're in this situation, but if you play hard in football, if you focus in school, you will have the opportunity to do better. Um, and you will have the opportunity to then pour back into the family and then so on and so forth. Where too many parents, we find they're in a situation and they either are either resentful to your children. Like, who do you think you are to think that you can do better than us? Who are you are to think that you're better than me? They can't help them with their homework. And they're like, oh, you think you're so smart because you know algebra and arithmetic. Like, where we have to get back to sort of that, con- that true context that, okay, even though I may be going through this situation, I ultimately have the ability to put my child in a position to do better so they can then pour back into the family. At City Relief, we aren't the only ones in the business of helping people. This podcast is brought to you by our longtime supporters and friends at Buttafuoco and Associates. They are dedicated to helping people rebuild their lives after a serious injury. They are a national injury law firm that has won over 500 million in verdicts and settlements for people struggling to overcome medical malpractice, construction accidents, auto accidents, injuries, wrongful death, and workers' compensation. Their team of personal injury attorneys has a genuine passion for seeking justice, and they understand the hardships that come with debilitating injuries that change the course of someone's life. If you or a loved one has experienced a serious injury, our friends at Butterfuco and Associates will take care of you. Contact them at 1-800-NOWHURT.COM or 1-800-669-4878. So we know that when you went to Georgetown for college and that's where you came up with the idea for good projects, I believe that's true. How did your upbringing and your experience with homelessness, but 
the way your mom navigated that with you. Um, how did that influence? Was that part of good projects coming to be? And did you did you picture it looking like this, the, the way it looks today? Well, no. And, and continue. I want to reiterate, I didn't even realize that that was a form of homelessness. Like when my, when I think about somebody experiencing homelessness, I think about somebody living on the 11th Street Bridge in a tent. That was sort of my context of what homelessness was, where particularly now working in this space and in this field, working with young people really between the age of like 14 and 24. And I don't know if you guys are aware, DC has per capita some of the highest rate of youth experiencing homelessness. And the reason that people don't realize this is because homelessness looks very different in the sense of you have a lot of young people that are couch surfing or couch hopping, particularly when you talk about um, the statistics are even more blaring when you start looking at young people in the city that are LGBTQ and have been um, disowned by their parents or their guardians. So I will say no, Miss Wendy, because when I was even coming up with the concept for good projects with my co-founders, I'm Daniel White and Troy Bullock, I still hadn't fully grasped how I had even experienced homelessness in my own childhood. Um, I did fully grasp that I had experienced poverty. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> um, but uh, that hadn't clicked for me yet. It wasn't until I started working with more young people that were sort of going through similar experiences that I had growing up. Where I was like, damn, like, I had been through that too. <laughs> you know, like, and seeing how they, where I was so naive to it that I just kind of took it in full stride. I realized that some of those experiences were traumatizing to them and were actually some of the things that were either holding them back or pushing them to lives of cramp. So then what was that period like where it started, you started realizing this um, and started crystallizing for you? What was that period like for you? Well, uh, thank God for a testimony, right? Like, thank God for a testimony. And sometimes we don't even realize we have one. And that was really that moment for me. Good Projects, um, we started off, our very first program was a summer camp at Anacostia High School. I would have been happy if five kids showed up, 70 kids showed up the first day. We don't have uh, two nickels to rub together to make sure they have a great summer. But I've always found that if you operate in purpose, God makes a way. So don't ask me now how we paid for everything. It's not even me being tired. I really couldn't tell you. Kids were on field trips every week. Everybody got fed. We had a bunch of counselors. Anacostia gave us the high school for a summer. I couldn't tell you one person from the school that was actually there, but they trusted us to run the high school basically for the summer. Um, and uh, people noticed. And uh, this is sort of, my, I'll give a little, uh, a small piece of advice for all of those young social entrepreneurs that are coming up in D.C. What gave uh, us our big start was we piloted that project, had a proof of concept, and then the city ultimately ended up giving us a grant for a half a million dollars to pilot what has now become this international initiative called the Credible Messenger Initiative. And to answer your question, Wendy, the Credible Messenger Initiative was a program, sort of this revolutionary program to support young people that were transitioning out of the juvenile justice system here in D.C. back into community. And it was sort of at that moment where I was getting challenged from all of these different sides. I was fresh out of Georgetown University. Like, you know, I was like, what do you know about juvenile prisons? Like, how are you going to relate to these kids that are living in abject poverty? And I started sort of having that, that old question in my head, like, God damn, like, can I relate to them enough? It was sort of a moment of discovery in a way, right? Because I'm sitting across from this young person that's being released for any number of 
level of crime from a juvenile justice, maybe 15, 16 years old. And they're sharing their story with me about what it's like to sleep on a couch for a few years, what it's like to not have food in the fridge. Um, to have to having to take a wash up. Shout out all our listeners to know what a wash up is. And I'm realizing that sort of despite all of this love that I had been had experienced my entire life, I had experienced a lot of trauma. And it's things that I hadn't even come to grips with. So there was a large part of the early years of my career, particularly when we were working with young people that were transitioning out of the juvenile justice system, where it was like opening up wounds that I didn't even know I had to the point I'm going in thinking I'm supporting and serving them and I'm discovering my own traumas of the fear that I felt you know one day uh we weren't going to have a home like it happened the first time like throughout my childhood the fear that you know uh somebody was going to come and I'm saying I used to save all of my birthday money and everything and I didn't even realize that was a trauma response like I would literally, every dollar that I would get for my birthday for years and years and years, any dollar I get from an so I would support it. Like, and I didn't realize that was a trauma response. Like, and I'm talking to them and I'm unpacking these things to the point that it actually led me into my own form of depression, right? Like, and imagine now I'm heading up and the product took off fast. And you guys said you did your research. In our first three years, we topped $2 million in revenue. Like, and we're at national press, we have a show on PBS, sitting on stage, being flown around. Like I told you I like sushi. The best sushi I ever had was on a private jet. You ever had private jet sushi? I had. It's pretty good. You know, like, uh, and I'm experiencing sort of all of the wonders of being a young upstart entrepreneur while also having to deal with these internalized traumas that I didn't know existed. And that was a tough period in my life. That was a tough period in my entrepreneurial journey to the point that I didn't think I was even cut out for this work anymore. Um, and I dealt with it in ways that probably a lot of entrepreneurs or hopefully not, but I hope this message resonates with somebody. You know, I found myself drinking every day, found myself uh, having sex every day, trying to just distract myself from things like, and, you know, sort of out in the world, portraying myself as this person that had it all together because I needed to appear that way, or at least I thought so to best support these young people transitioning out of the juvenile justice system. Where internally, I was just a 22, 23, 24-year-old that was scared, trying to deal with shit just like anybody else. It's interesting, man, how you do, like you're talking about even like really God kind of leading you to this work and how there be work. You're stepping into the space to be a blessing to people and you start really having things about yourself kind of open up and having to then deal with that and go through like, okay, what does it look like to, to heal from that, right? Like, what does it look like to heal from the, the, the traumas that you didn't realize you were dealing with? Can you speak to what it looked like to find that healing? Or even if you're, you know, still on that path of learning, like, okay, I don't have to present as a certain way or look a certain way, but I'm, you know, just like the people I'm serving, right? I'm going through my own kind of issues and, and healing from those things. What has that process looked like for you? Man, it was developing my diaphragm. And what I mean by that is like, I don't know if this is going to be a video interview. It, like, it comes from here. This is where your diaphragm is, right? Like, diaphragm. It was developing it right from here. And it had to come up from the diaphragm. But to understand more than anything, uh, that I didn't need to be perfect, right? Because so often we put people on these pedestals just to tear them down. And I had seen that so much in my life growing up, and especially being a young, successful, dare I say, um, entrepreneur. I put myself on such a high pedestal because of all the noise around me, 
oh my God, this is that, you're great. Oh my God, this is that. And I'm like, I have to live up to this standard where, again, I started this organization 22 years old. I'm like, you know, I make mistakes every day. <laughs> I might have got a little drunk this weekend, you know, dragging it, dragging it to the office a little bit. But it's like, yeah, you have employees, staff, all of these things. It was sort of a moment of clarity. It was right around my, I want to say, 25th birthday. I just called all of my family members and I'm like, yo, for my birthday, I don't want to go to the club. I don't want to do anything. I'm going to run a van. If you all could just join me, I think, um, uh, Casey Pyre, I think we went to Myrtle Beach. We go to Myrtle Beach. I think we went to Myrtle Beach and like 10 of my family members and my closest friends, my birthday, we all just stayed in this house in Myrtle Beach. And I told him, I said, look, guys, um, I know we're having this tremendous success right now. Um, and I had already told my staff, I know we're having a success right now. Things are going fast, but I, ca- I can't do this. I can't do this right now. I sort of felt this guilt, right? Because I'm already feeling burnout. I'm only three or four years into the game. I'm like, how the holy hell did somebody do this for 30 years? <laughs> like, my mom at that time had already been a DCPS teacher for 30 years. Had been through the, uh, the traumatic murder of my father. Like never skipped a beat. Had to keep moving around all these things. And I'm sort of holding myself to that standard. Like, God damn, this woman. And different. And I didn't give myself grace to be like, yo, you can get tired, bro. You're putting it in the context of the four years that you've been an entrepreneur and not putting it in the context of the 25 years of trauma that you've experienced. I experienced the violent murder of my father in my childhood home at nine years old. And I had to go back to school. <laughs> like, you know, I was just a normal kid like everybody else. Y'all ever been through a murder trial? I had <laughs> before I was 10. Like, and it was sort of getting to a point where I could give myself that grace to say, Darius, you deserve rest. Even God rested on the seventh day. And I ain't God. I don't want to be. I don't even know what pulpit would have me. I don't think I could be a preacher these days. But it was in that moment where I said, guys, I'm going to just step away for a second. I don't know when I'm going to get back, but I need to step away. And when I get back, um, I promise you I'll be a better version of myself. And um, my family was so supportive. Shout out, shout out a great family, man. I've always, I've always been blessed um, to be surrounded by great family and friends. City Relief is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give or volunteer and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. And uh, I looked online and I said, I like kind of bit Dave Chappelle when he went to Africa for his sabbatical. And I was like, what is the, the cheapest ticket uh, to Africa. And it was to uh, Nairobi, Kenya, ironically. At that time, the round trip ticket was like 600 bucks. I was making like 50,000 a year or something. I was like, yes, like that's, that's where I'm going. <laughs> um, hop on a plane. Uh, my family literally from Myrtle Beach, they dropped me off at the airport. <laughs> and uh, I fly to Nairobi, Kenya. I arrive at like three o'clock in the morning. And it's pitch black. I did no research of this, lo- of where I was going, <laughs> uh, where I was supposed to stay, nothing. 
by the grace of God, they speak English over here because I would have been shit out of luck. I tell the story to really stress the importance of listening to the voice of God. You know, and the voice of God can show up in a lot of different ways in our life, right? You read stories in the Bible, they make it seem like, you know, God texts you like, yo, I'm about to hit your line real quick. Then y'all set up a time. You get on the phone together and he's like, all right, this is the message, bro. Okay. Then he sends a follow-up email. So, you know, outline, but a lot of time it might come through another person. It may come through sort of a feeling. It may come through something you see or read, whatever it is, but God will speak. I mean, go to this place and just trust them. Show up. I can't make, I can't make this up. I leave the airport and there's a taxi driver, just like any other airport. There's a taxi driver. And, uh, and I, I just pick one. I'm like, the first, it's only like two or three. Zero. I'm like, oh, his, his name was Benson. I'm like, oh, what's going on, Benson? Like, uh, I don't know where I'm going. I just got here from the States, from the States. Ooh, okay. Uh, yeah. He's like, all right, I'll take you to a hostel where you can stay. Takes me to this hostel in Nairobi in the Westland. And he's like, all right, I'll be back around tomorrow if you want to go on like safari or something. It's late. We didn't get too much. Even too. He takes me to the hostel. I walk down the next day. He's waiting there like he said he would. And he's like, okay, so you want to do safari? You know, like want to go some food? What? I'm like, no, man. Like I'm from the States. You know, I run this nonprofit. And it's a lot of, it's a lot on me back there. But regardless of the fact, I have a heart to serve. And Gandhi, as racist as he was, had this amazing line. He said, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And I've always embodied that. It was the background of my computer for a very long time. And I said, I'm lost right now. And the best thing that I can do while I'm here is serve. Can you take me to the poorest part of this country? And I just want to serve authentically. And mind you, again, add context, right? I'm coming from an environment where serving means being on stages, means cameras in your face, means everybody want fancy ass dinners, all this stuff. I was like, I don't want to do any of that. I'm here, serve and serve in the most authentic way. He's like, are you sure? <laughs> like, yes, brother. Like, I am sure. Because my thing is like, again, we, uh, poor here is like, oh, public housing. He's like, the poorest part, not the middle, the poor, the poorest part. My best past dementia action. He's like the poorest part, like the poorest part past dementia. And we drive all of, I can't remember. We're in like the nice Africa. It's, it's some nice parts in there. Like looks like New York city in places. I'm telling you, we didn't drive 10 minutes and it looks like we're pulling into a landfill. All of a sudden it opens up and there's this entire village, a million people, the Kimanguari slum. And we drive in and literally is a landfill. It's terrible how they treat people. And I don't want to knock, I don't want to knock it, but there's a lot of work to be done in Africa. And, and, and people that are from uh, the continent know that. And we drive in and we drive down to the bottom of the hill where literally the sewage, because it's at the bottom of the hill, has run into it. And there's a husband and wife that took every dollar that they had following God's plan to open a school for orphan kids in the neighborhood. And they're literally having to have the school where the runoff is from the shit. I cannot make this up. Like, because it's the only place that they could afford. And they have 50 or so kids that are there. And we went day after day that are coming every single day just to get a schoolhouse, a school, a school, educate, uh, get an education. 
in a single room, all ages, from babies all the way up to um, the equivalent of what 12th grade would be. They're coming there every single day just to get a quality education. And I went there day after day after day, serving, doing my best to try to support and help them. And when it was time for me to finally leave, at that time, we were still still struggling with what our structure was going to be in, in D.C. And I told them, you know, I can't necessarily allocate funds from because we were doing a lot of government grants. Those are allocated to um, to the programs in D.C. Yes. I don't know exactly how the nonprofit can support you, but I'm going to find a way to do everything that I can to support you guys. And at that time, again, I think I was making like $50,000 a year. No, I'm going to talk to my financial advisor. So, you know, I don't care how we have to do it, but I want us to send them $250 a month. And it started off as $250 a month, just sending over there. The next thing I know, I'm getting reports back. We bought books. Um, there's 75 kids in the school. A year later, $250 and like 500 bucks a month. Like we bought desks. There's like 100 kids in the school. Two years later, I think we, we were at like a um, $1,000 a month we were sending over there. It's all my personal wealth. And next thing I know where we are today, we have over 200 kids that are in the school. We're no longer at the bottom of the hill. We have a very brand new location, 12 classrooms. Um, but in what I thought was sort of my worst moment, like where I'm depressed, you know, like just listening to the voice of God took me to Nairobi, Kenya has now blossomed all these years later into us having our own school in Nairobi, the Baxter Family Care Center, center that now houses over 200 kids, no cost to them. Um, tons of teachers. It's more now than John and Lily and the husband and wife. We have a bunch of teachers. It was just listening to that voice. They have now turned into this awesome movement. I'm actually going to be over there. I leave in two weeks um, where we're now setting up the school to be its own uh, water treatment center. Um, that people in the community can come there for clean water for nominal cost. And then those funds reinvest into the school, which is then reinvesting into the community because we're producing uh, educated students. Uh, but I tell that story because it's just like, was it? I'm going to quote Jalen Hurts as we approach the Super Bowl. He just did an interview and it was John 13, seven, I believe. And so you may not understand now, but you will. And I reflect on that moment, that period sort of in my life, because it's like, damn, like I didn't understand at the moment why I needed to go through that. But I know now, like I know now. Yeah. And what's interesting is I heard you say um, that it was time to treat yourself with grace. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of leading into this incredible story and lives changing and years later looking so different. And um, that, that the guy was a part of that. And helping you to come to the place where you're ready to treat yourself with grace. It's really an amazing, amazing story. We're all imperfect in all of our own ways. Mm -hmm. so, social media, <laughs> everything else I have us thinking that we have to have all the answers all the time. You know, I, I, I live in a place of joy now. After going through that experience, once I came back, remember, I said again, it's got to come from the diaphragm, right? Like the, the joy that I feel like. Of <laughs> uh, just being able to be in person, you know, like that. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. Like I have nothing to prove to anybody. This could all be taken from me today, and I've proven to myself I will still find a way to serve. 
who still find a way to serve. I don't need the accolades. I don't need the podcast. I don't need the the Forbes list. I don't need the uh, oh, God damn, I got a beautiful home. Maybe keep a beautiful home, but like everything else, <laughs> you know, like, my truth. I, I figured out in that moment, you know, the, the thing that was really bringing me down. I'm sort of looking externally. I'm thinking like, oh, it's the it's the trauma. It's the it, it's the um, it's having to travel all the time and all of these things. No, it was because I had lost myself. I had lost my purpose. Like. Let me say, you guys asked me to start this interview. Thank you for coming. Well, I don't even, I, I, every time something comes through, I send it to Casey. Casey, that's depressed. <laughs> Are we doing this? Are we not? She apparently loved you guys' vision for this. Um, but this is not my interest. If This is a platform to be able to continue to advocate about the work that we do. Um, but the greatest joy that I have is being on the ground, in the fight, face sweaty and bloody from the battle in service to others. Um, and it took me going through that to truly understand and be able to define for myself without a shadow of a doubt what my purpose and plan is and like what God has in store. So it sounds like um, a lot of mindset thing. And it was reminding me of the you talk about poverty mindset versus growth mindset. Certainly. Um, can you yeah. Can you unpack that? Is, is that kind of what you're describing? Certainly. And that's really at the core of what we're what we support families with in the work that we do with the projects. Family success planning is, is a core principle of the programs that we offer. And yeah, we can be celebrated for all the meals that we give out. We have a feeding program um, that feeds over 60 individuals every day. We have our high-impact tutoring program, number one rated high-impact tutoring program in um, Washington, D.C. Uh, what we do from a housing perspective, supporting families as they're transitioning out. And, you know, all of these individual things that we can say we do, case management service, blah, 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 blah. But more than anything, what we're training families to understand and appreciate and own is that they are the captains of their own ship. They, despite where they are, that does not have to be where they end up. Like if we were in, this would be a different conversation, right? Like completely different conversation than I'm having when I'm in Nairobi, Kenya, and I'm looking at a kid that's orphan, maybe missing a limb, hasn't eaten in a few days, and is struggling. When they're asleep at their desk in class, you legitimately are like, I, I can understand why. You had to stay up all night because you were scared somebody might wake you in your sleep. And not to say that experience doesn't exist in D.C., but I'm not going to liken at all the things that those children go through in the slums of uh, of Kenya. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's things that we can never think or imagine literally going to school and, and you're surrounded by shit. Right. But when we look at it in the context of DC, the big thing that we try to impress upon the family that we work with is that we are in the nation's cap. DC has more programs than pretty much any other jurisdiction in the, in the country. Uh, and it's highlighted by all of the development that is happening around us. Um, I'm here in Southwest D.C. and our project is based in Southwest D.C. There's always jobs that are becoming available. Look on Indeed right now. There's more jobs than there's applicants. The biggest thing to shift the trajectory of your family is believing that your family's trajectory can be shifted. That typically becomes the hurdle that we're facing with families, right? Like I had a, a parent that came in... Um, uh, last week, 
And uh, she just was doing her intake for family success planning, which is the beginning process for our case management. And she's doing what we call our, her empowerment circle. And it was like, what is your biggest goal? I want to be working. I've been looking for a job for 10 years. I ain't never got nothing. The world is down on me. Don't nobody love me. I was like, you want a job? That's your goal? I was like, that's it? She's like, yeah. Yes, anyway. I pick up the phone. In the meeting. Pick up the phone. I call our, our recruiter. Yo, got another one for you. I bet. Send over their resume. We got three options. The interviews tomorrow. By the end of the week, she got her uniform, her ID card, and she got the job. She's like, I can't believe it. You got me the job. And she's thanking me and doing all of this stuff. Look, that didn't cost me nothing. It wasn't difficult to do. I know how to navigate the resources, right? Because I have to make the decision, you know, for these families. Like, yo, you won't do that. Like, I'm going to eliminate as many her as possible. But if you're in a position, right, like, and not to knock the woman, but she grew up in poverty herself, living in public housing for 30 years. In her mind, she had convinced herself that she wasn't worthy of employment. In her mind, she had convinced herself that if she applies for a job, that they're going to turn her down. Or if I apply for a job and they turn me down, then I should just stop. I'm not going to try again for another few weeks because I don't want that um, rejection. Where it's like the overcomers are the people that can succeed despite and finish that sentence however you want. I'm going to be, and this is what our mother taught us. We start ha- we're having a conversation about experience of homelessness, right? This is what our mother always taught us. You are going to be great despite. You are going to have a great day in school despite the fact that you had to take a bath in the sink. You are going to be a great athlete despite the fact that a core staple in your diet is ramen noodles. Like <laughs> You are going to, even when I was at Georgetown, you are going to be successful at this university despite the challenges that you are facing that are leading you um, to not want to be here. Like You're going to be successful despite. And we don't adopt that mentality enough, particularly as, and I hold it, like, particularly as black people. Like, it's, I'm not going to be successful because of this. I can't be successful because of that. Well, we have to lose that. Like, I'm not going to come on no podcast, especially going into Black History Month, talking about nothing else. And shout out my haters if they disagree with me right now. But I'm of the mindset that despite what we go through, what we deal with, despite the fact that they don't want us to win, despite the fact that they kill us and put it on television in the hopes of breaking our spirit, that we're going to continue to succeed, elevate, and be great, and own things, and build things, and create great families, and be loving to our wives and to our children. Yeah, I think the, uh, that, that perspective, right? Like the fact that you are doing what you can to change the narrative in someone else's mind about themselves, right? Because there are so many things, whether it's what you've grown up with, whether it's what other people have said about you, right? There's all these things that convince someone that there's only so much they can do. Um, you know, I think about being, working on the street with people and like there are instances where I've talked to individuals who are like, yeah, I'm not really going to look for help because this has happened, that has happened. It's just, there's no way out of this for me. So I'm just going to come here and kind of get my cup of soup and whatever. And um, trying to create community around people, whereas like just continuing to give them that those reminders that uh, there is the possibility of success uh, for you, uh, you know, outside of this. Again, that idea, right? So, so many times there are all these false narratives that people uh, internalize from themselves or within themselves, but also, you know, it's coming from outside a lot of time. How do you um, 
deal with that? Like, are there things, obviously we're saying like there's, there's, there is things they can do despite, right? But are there any ways that you're looking at, okay, how do we address some of those false narratives that are coming and those false kind of ideas about what someone who's struggling through poverty is going to be able to do, what someone who's struggling with homelessness can actually accomplish? You know, there are ways you're, you're mindful about dealing with those false narratives. Certainly. And I, I, look, to the last segment that we just discussed, we're tackling those things. And this is sort of our own fault. We're always challenging how we're marketing our organization and the products that we offer. The same way any other organization offers, you know, feeding programs, case management services, housing supports, um, in our case, after school program and summer camps, all at no cost to families. We do all of those things. Man, people that come and visit our site are often shocked. They're like, God damn, I didn't know y'all was doing all of this. Because <laughs> a lot of the stuff that we put out is like, a real lesson, like joy, <laughs> a lot of joy, it's a lot of events people see that we do. The, they, they're like shocked. They're like, damn, y'all got a whole suite of services. I'm like, have you looked at our form? It says programming services. It's been like a million dollars a year. Like, where you think that money was going? Like, um, so it's all of those things are being done, even within good projects. A lot of those things are being done, especially in the context of D.C., uh, we have, I think, the most nonprofits per capita um, than any other um, jurisdiction in the country. And then put on top of that, the government services that are being offered through uh, agencies like the Department of Employment Services, um, the Department of Small Local Business Development. Um, there's a plethora, even uh, uh, shout out all my young people to Marion Berry Summer Youth Employment Program is open now. Right? 14 years old. I think it may have right? Lower than the 13, but don't quote me on that. So there's all of these opportunities that exist everywhere you turn. You can't miss an opportunity in DC, right? Like you can't miss an opportunity. Throw a stone. There's some resource to help support, uh, name the marginalized group. <laughs> like, all this stuff. Resource to support them, like down to the specifics, like trying people of the church of the flying spaghetti monster that are trying to buy housing. Like that probably exists in DC. If you're of the mindset to think that to the example that you just provided, Cindy, like, okay, I'm never going to be better. Or I'm never going to get any farther than where I am. You're not even going to take the time to seek those resources and supports out. Or even worse, when they do present themselves to you, you're not going to feel like you deserve to take advantage of them or you're just going to shut them away. Right? And so that's the shift, right? And again, this would be a completely different conversation in the context if we were in you know, the bayous of New Orleans out in the backwoods and the closest hospital is an hour and a half away. I, I don't know if that's actually the case in the bayous in New Orleans. Shout out all my New Orleans listeners, but you get the point. That's not the case in D.C., right? And D.C. is one of the few jurisdictions that realizes, as highlighted when we talk a lot about gentrification, that poverty, particularly crime, is bad for business, which is one of the reasons why they invest so much in crime intervention tactics. Let's invest in this community or to intervene. They, they realize that and recognize it. I don't think they're doing it for the love of the people. No, they recognize it's bad for business. When it's a common thing. By a show of hands, how many people on the, on the podcast carbon getting broken into before in dc <laughs> am i alone i'm alone in this i'm seeing some handshakes all right so 
like that's not particularly in the nation's capital. That's not good for business, right? Like, but as an individual that's going through poverty, right? Now, understand everybody doesn't have the blessing to have a Stephen Page Baxter as their mother um, that helps nurture them in that way. But if you hear my voice, that means you hear this podcast. So you can't say you ain't never heard it before. Everybody has the opportunity to be great in this city. That's my belief. It may be an unpopular opinion. People can disagree with it. But I believe if you put your mind to it, even from the access to university, the University of the District of Columbia is one of the cheapest schools in the country if you're an in-state resident. You can go to, uh, and there's tons of scholarships and financial aid, right? But, but if you go into a high school now, a lot of them across the city, and this is sort of strategies that DCPS has to think too, like so many people are disengaged. How many, they literally have, they have to hire partners to try to recruit people to take advantage of programs in the city because people are so disengaged and don't want, oftentimes don't see more for themselves and for their families, right? And that's sort of the challenge that we have to overcome on a daily basis. I'm not surprised that this has been such an amazingly fascinating conversation. I feel like we could talk all day, so we're going to have to have you back for sure. But because we're almost out of time, I do want to wrap up with a question we try to ask all our guests. So you were looking at your calendar earlier and you're like, oh, look at this. I'm scheduled to be on this podcast, so I'm going to do that. And you saw the title. Nobody chooses homelessness. So what, how does that resonate with you? Uh, nobody chooses homelessness. The first, I don't know why, the first thing it makes me think about is Tyler Perry. Like, I know it's a story that's been told. I'm just telling you the first thing that came to my mind. It's like, you know, he tells the story often. Of, and Steve Harvey's story is very similar to again, Like, they fell in these periods in their life where they didn't have a dollar in their pocket and they had to, like, live out of their cars. Um, and I think the uh, the author of um, the Harry Potter series, I think she had a similar story. I think she had a kid at the time, too. She was going through this with. It's like, the challenge is nobody chooses homelessness. But, again, in the context of D.C., it's going to be all of our choices if we remain in it, right? And I'll share that through the context of my own life again, right? I never try to speak from a perspective of something that I haven't experienced on my own. I don't have the right to do that. I would never dare to. You look, people can look at me now and be like, oh my gosh, he's got his fancy glasses. His lineup is crazy. Like, you know, like, oh my God, he got it all together. Like, but I've been arrested. You know, I've been in somebody's jail cell. You know, even as an entrepreneur, I've been homeless. I, I knew I was homeless at that point time. So when I was living at, shout out on my college students, little tip, they don't actually check the dorm rooms after move out there. You can stay a little longer. Like, I knew I was homeless at that point, you know? <laughs> but I knew that wasn't my destination. That was a part of the journey, right? And understanding, and I'm not talking to the population of people because there are people that are experiencing serious mental health issues. They find themselves experiencing homelessness, and there's a different set of challenges that they're facing, support that they need to ultimately make it out of that. That's not who I'm talking to in this moment. I'm talking to the young person right now, 13, 14, 15, 16 year old, that's maybe couch surfing. I'm talking to the person that has is applying for one job every three weeks, thinking that that's going to get them to where they need to go. You know, that's who I'm talking to right now. Success is hard. And to make it out of homelessness is like a, a, a plane taking off, right? Like we've been on a plane before. On those first 
those first few minutes, that thing is pumping. You hear the engines roaring. You got it like it's going up into the sky. Like it's just it's hard. 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 But then when you get to like thirteen thousand feet, it starts to level out and it becomes a lot easier, right? Like I'm not claiming that it's easy. I'm not claiming that it's a crystal state. What I'm claiming is nobody chooses homelessness. But if you're able-bodied, able-minded, and got at least one person that'll pick up your phone call and listen to you vent when you had a bad day, like you can make it out. Like, and if you don't got that person, shit, call our main line. They go straight to Casey's phone. She'll listen to you. Like <laughs> <laughs> the plane's taking off. It's it's working from its diaphragm to get up, right? Remember, from the diaphragm, that big. Yeah, right. Well, that's that's a fantastic thing to take away. Right. It's been so, I mean, honestly, this entire time, really enjoyed talking to you. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, man. Thank you. Only one way to go out in today's culture. Every conversation, you're either pushing to get canceled or why are you on it at all? So hopefully as we head into the month, people are either going to be like, wow, that was an amazing conversation or, you know, we never listened to it again. But either way, uh, they were listening. So <laughs> thank you all for inviting me on the show today. Hey, you. Yes, you. Listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry, we are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.